welcome everyone to another episode of the Reptile Room Podcast. I'm your host, Riley Jimison. Tonight, you're going to have to put up with just me. So, tonight is episode four of the Reptile Room Podcast. And, unfortunately, Andy Ray is not able to join us tonight. Andy is a working man, husband, father, three kids, and uh, quite a talented photographer. And when certain golf tournaments come around or other work opportunities, he uh, he knows his priorities. So I told him, uh, "Do your thing, and I will I will pilot this this ship through our stormy seas." So, tonight you're going to have to just put up with me, or this morning, I suppose, uh, in order to make this work and stick to our schedule. It's just going to be me tonight. But that being said, we're going to try and keep this rolling, keep it going, and uh, it is what it is. This is part of the life of, of you know, working, managing a family, and a collection all at the same time. So for for this week, um, you know we've got a we got a long list of all sorts of stuff that folks have been requesting for us to bring up, and and we're dialing in the uh, the ability to bring a guest on. It shouldn't be a problem soon, but obviously with uh, with it being just myself tonight, um, we didn't want to try and swing for the fences with uh, with half a half a bench. So. Please uh, forgive the lack of uh, interviewees and guests on here just yet. It's coming down the pipeline soon, but uh, for the for the time being, we're going to still impart some of our own homegrown wisdom upon you. And uh, this week, I figured we'd just sort of touch base on on what I've been up to the last few days, few weeks, and. Uh, and get into some timely topical Morelia breeding season uh, discussion given the time of the year and my affinity for garbage pythons. So, um, without further ado, welcome to the Reptile Room Podcast, Episode 4. So, um, normally, you know, talking by by myself is, is an awkward thing, but I, I'm good at it. <laughs> I'm, I'm all right i i will get through this pretend andy's you know listening there in spirit he'll be uh he'll be helping me edit this one up and make sure we stay on time for for all of you listeners but i just got back a couple of days ago from a work trip uh for those of you who don't know i do work as a, a zookeeper and uh before we keep going any opinions and uh, statements you hear from me are strictly my own opinions, statements, and words. They they do not reflect on my employer, and uh, I just need to make that really clear. I'm, I'm doing this for fun. This is not a, an ulterior motive or hidden agenda sort of thing, and I also need to, to make sure there's a division between what I do for fun and what I do for work. But... Um, yeah, I was in uh, South Florida for a couple of days, getting some extra 
practice hands-on work training with with alligators crocodilians and uh we got a big project coming up here so we're working on getting an exhibit rolling getting some alligators coming in and there's uh there's a lot to look forward to in the future so i was you know uh fortunate enough to be able to go down to to florida and get a little bit of extra uh, practice training kick uh kick some of the rust off and uh have a couple co-workers come with me and we learned some of this as well. Um, I went to uh, Croc School in 2016 through AZA's uh, professional development courses at St. Augustine Alligator Farm. And I was very fortunate enough to learn the ropes in crocodilian biology and captive management in zoos. And uh, as part of uh, a big project we're working on here, um, it just seemed to to make a lot of sense to to go get a little bit of hands on beforehand, you know. Just why not? You know, practice makes perfect. You never you never professional. You're never totally done. You're always learning more, and it's always good to stamp on your skills. So that's what I've been up to, and uh, I always enjoy a good opportunity going down to Florida, getting to experience another climate, another culture, another world. Uh, there's nothing like being able to keep your reptiles outdoors and having a climate that's very suitable to a lot of tropical reptiles. So it was very interesting. Um, I love crocodilians. It unfortunately gets a little bit too cold where I'm at here in, in Sacramento to, uh, to comfortably house a lot of these animals outdoors year round. So most facilities out here either only have, uh, have alligators because they're pretty tolerant otherwise it's quite an endeavor to to manage internal and interior exhibits for a lot of these these species that need it to you know never get certainly too cold so um got a lot to look forward to in the future um had a lot of fun and uh was only there for a couple days a couple nights Nothing too extensive, but uh, got to see Zoo Miami, Everglades Alligator Farm, and the Everglades Outpost. And uh, if you're familiar with the Everglades Outpost, you know that uh, Chandler from Chandler's Wildlife is out there um, putting together a, a whole venomous education room, kind of show a lot of the, the various venomous pit vipers he's, he's working them with and cobras and um a couple of lapids things like that so he uh was gracious enough to take the time out of his day to show us kind of a little bit around what he's doing there so that was exciting um but you know there's a lot i got to do before that that uh, was all part of you know the professional development that is part of my job and uh a lot of stuff i can't necessarily publicize just because it is behind the scenes and, you know, photos and videos don't convey the entire context and it can be taken out of, out of the reality of what's visible and just be blown out of proportion. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot and I'm really excited for, for what it's going to, to do for my job here and, and things, how it's going to change. So 
I was, uh, I was out there, you know, living in reptile paradise for a few days, but, um, all that, uh, aside, I was very excited to come back home because, you know, we're starting to get some warmer days in the seventies and low eighties again, starting to hit middle of February when pythons are, you know, typically being cycled back up. So if you do temperature cycling or food cycling, now is right about that time where you're starting to ramp things back up in preparation for another production. So that's kind of where I'm at. And so coming home was really nice because things are starting to get warm. Animals are starting to perk up. I'm seeing activity levels skyrocket a little bit. And so um, was able to do a little bit more transitioning. So um, upgraded a couple animals that are warming up and, and time to get into bigger spaces, getting a few animals back on food. You know, a lot of the animals that are cycling here haven't eaten in the last two to four three months or so and and that's pretty normal uh, in the wild you know based on prey availability and the, the wet and dry season sometimes you know these animals don't get to eat for extended periods of time and that goes for for babies to adults so um everything that's in this room gets gets a bit of a cycle um you know lower nighttime lows not quite as warm during the day uh less food to to no food even um and that goes for babies you know these these animals are they're going to be expected to withstand that uh, as they age. And the sooner they are sort of adjusted and living in that, that cycle, um, you know, the better equipped they are for, for that as they age. And when it comes time for them to breed, it'll, you know, just be a part of the routine. So, um, so right now we're, let's, you know, by the time you're hearing me, it's, uh, it's February 13th. It's kind of middle of February. And, uh, there's, there's a lot to, to start shifting gears towards, um, mostly time to, to warm up your animals, right? So it's around this time. Most folks are starting to bring their nighttime lows back up a little bit. Uh, if you've altered the daytime lows and highs, uh, you're, you're starting to shift them back up to those peak temperatures where the hot spots around 88 to 90. It's not getting quite so cold at night. And, um, and things are starting to shift back to what a lot of breeders focus on as far as their, their routine day and night cycles for, for most of the year even. So, um you know, it's now time to start paying attention to your animals, who's looking for food, who's ready to breed, who should have been breeding thus far. Uh, I know a lot of folks will uh, will cool animals together or let them cycle through that winter together just to give them the best odds of success, kind of gauge some compatibility early on. But if you're doing a lot of winter breeders, you're sort of... This is, this is the heat of the moment. Like you, you've probably been putting animals together for the last week or two, if not a little bit longer to see how they're doing. Um, if you're doing some spring breeders, this is about the time you're warming them back up, giving them a meal or two and, and popping males and females in together and seeing how they're doing. Um, whether that be colubrids or, or pythons such as brettles, pythons and diamonds, pythons. It's, uh, it's right around that time. These animals seem to 
need to hit these really cool temperatures uh, during the winter and then come back up before you start seeing any action and, and any ovulation or swelling or anything like that. Um, but part of what I wanted to get into to tonight was uh, if you're if you're going through the breeding season, what are some of your timelines and what are you looking for um, to kind of gauge where your animals are at? There's a lot of little red flags and tells in there. And uh, ultimately, you know, your, your eyes are your best teacher. You need to go through this several times before you really feel confident and uh, pretty secure in what you're seeing and, and understanding what's going on. Um, you know, I can only tell you what I know and have experienced, but ultimately you have to walk through that yourself. So um, if you've got animals up to size, you've been getting them fed, you've been getting them prepped and ready, and the winter comes around, you taper them off for food, and they start spending most of their time sort of hunkering down during the winter. Usually for for your winter breeders, and that's, you know, jungles, poplins, coastals, um, you know, darwins, uh, nova guineas, things like that, uh, they, they tend to breed during that cooler time period and, and start tapering off as it gets warmer. Whereas your spring breeders being your brettles, your diamonds, uh, and I believe inlands, although I don't have them, so I could be misspeaking. They might have some sort of a, a gray area in there. Those animals don't really start showing much signs of interest until they've sort of been brought back up out of that, that cool period, maybe had a meal or two, and then introduced to a potential mate. So there's a lot of uh, little subtle differences in technique there, but ultimately you're cycling um, temperature and food availability. Now with those, those spring breeders, they need to get cold. Like brettles and diamonds need to get into the 50s, 60s, um, you know, like counterintuitive to what you would expect a python would need. Um, they're built for it. That's, that seems to be it. Um, that's just kind of what really cues them biologically to, to cycle. So, um, I know for, for my previous clutches, I'm at this point in time, middle of February, if I haven't seen good, uh, lockups or any like mid body swelling from a couple females, um, I can usually safely say that they're not going to go this year. So last year I had a, a clutch of poplin carpets and, and I repeated the pairing and the female is just not, not showing me anything. So I think she just isn't really ready to go back to back seasons, which is fine. Um, most people are able to do that and, and no ill effects. I just don't think um, she's quite there. So I don't think she's ready to go. Um, and based on the timeline, when she went last year, it's starting to get late. And that's just one of those things that you don't really get a good grasp and understanding until you've done it and seen it and, and kind of gotten used to that, that time frame of everything. But you never know. I mean, animals can surprise you. Different seasons end up being weird. Certain weather patterns, warmer winters, wetter winters, rainstorms. You know, there's a whole lot of variables that come into play, so... Um, you can't 
we can't throw in the towel super early, but you can certainly, with some level of confidence, understand whether or not you're going to have success or not. Um, so there's a lot going on. I mean, uh, like I said, the, the pop one female, she doesn't look like she wants to go back to back just yet. And that's fine. They're smaller, smaller subspecies. And, uh, she's, you know, definitely not on the bigger end. So I'm okay with, you know, her deciding to take a year off. The, uh, the Exanic Coastal is entering her, um, post-ovulatory shed. She's swelled up like a balloon on down a little bit, but is still massive and starting to show the telltale signs of, of the next step in that cycle. So I'm really excited about that. Um, she was paired with a, a tiger head exanic. So, um, you know, fingers crossed for some good silver and black stripes. Um, and got a citrus tiger head albino female that's you know looking promising but i wouldn't say it's a for sure thing uh offered a small meal today i'm still pairing her with a male but you know given the timeline like i've been saying it it could go either way i'm, I'm not seeing 100 for sure you know throwing the towel signs but i'm also not seeing definitive signs that she's just not gonna happen um she's nice and thick nice and swollen spending a lot of time on the cool end a lot of these signs that over time, you see enough of this pattern of behavior and you start being able to associate it with a female who seems to be cycling. Uh, and that's just how it is. Um, you know, experience is your best teacher. So a lot of, a lot of different things to pay attention to. Ultimately, you need to you need to understand how your room works. You need to know your animals. You need to be able to read body language and, and spend time checking in on your animals. Uh, I've got some very shy Darwins that seem to spend all the time hidden in the back, behind the hide, under the hide, uh, disappear when I come home, when lights turn on. And Ironically, that is the, the, the enclosure I have a camera in there. So um, if I was, you know, hipping with it and on top of it, I would, you know, be checking that camera all the time at work. But that's just, you know, not realistic. I've got a lot of things to juggle. But uh, it's pretty interesting. These animals are very in tune with you more so than I am with them, it seems. So lights turn on, they hide. When I come in, they're very alert and aware, but, uh, there's a, there's a lot that's going on. So, um, one of the things that tends to throw people off a lot in the first couple of years of breeding with, with carpet pythons or just, you know, snakes in general, honestly, you, it, like I said, you don't really understand a lot of these things until you see them enough times, but there is a big difference between ovulatory swelling versus a true ovulation. And uh, I myself get duped by this a lot where I see a female side rolling, showing a lot of scale separation, going off food, you know, showing me all those telltale signs of putting it all together. And then she sort of deflates, loses that, and then nothing ever comes of it. Um, that's a, a classic example of, of being... Uh, being overexcited and mistaking a 
ovulatory swelling for an ovulation. And and usually what that does is it it convinces the keeper that his job is done and he doesn't need to put put the the pair back together anymore. And what you end up finding is you you don't get any production. Uh, And that female may have been on track, but you, you know, you were so tricked by that that you stopped pairing the male when, in fact, you need to keep throwing in for another couple, couple pairs, couple weeks, um, just really keep that that cycle going. So, it uh, it can be really difficult, even when you do have a nice little roadmap to follow. Um, it's just you know when you're working with animals, there's a lot of variables at play. There's a lot of things up in the air, and every year is different. Every animal is different and within your formula, you can have, you know, three seasons of a female being predictable and then all of a sudden one year she just, you know, goes off script. So it can be really difficult. Um, Reading, reading animals is not as cut and dry as, as reading a book. Um, Reading animals comes down to having spent years seeing their patterns of behavior. Um, as best you can, the, the, you know, the more data you collect, the better you understand an animal, of course, but even still certain subspecies and species behave in trends. And within that, there's little subtle things and snakes don't give you facial expressions. They don't, they don't make any noises. They don't really give you any tells. So you really have to be on it. Um, so it's tough. And even the best of, of breeders, you know, will have off seasons. One of the other things that uh, that can can lead breeders awry is whether or not an, an animal is interested, and at certain times of the season, their their interest can wane and, and kind of ebb and flow. Um, you'll often find a male is very interested in going off food uh, for an extended period of time, but the female isn't quite cycling yet, and she'll give you a whole bunch of behavioral signs. She'll refuse food, you know, all these things that kind of convince you that she's throwing out some pheromones obviously something's getting to that male's head right he's he's very focused he seems distracted he's not paying attention to you or food he's kind of got a one-track mind but when you put them together she's not really having it she's shoving them off they you know you check on them they're on opposite ends of the enclosure it's kind of interesting um and I guess there's something to be said for compatibility because it is obviously something that can plague certain species, but, um, you know, timing, timing is everything. You can throw a female in with a male or a male in with a female and they might be perfect for one another, but because of the time of year or the pheromones she's putting out, she's just not having it or he's more excited and motivated than she is. Um, one of the things you hear about with some species that are more generalist feeders is incidents with, uh, you know, accidental cannibalization or just like striking out in a, in a reaction that results in one another grabbing each other. Um, it's usually with a lot of liasa species, but I've had coastal carpets grab each other when, uh, you know, tensions are high. There's a lot of energy running. Um, not necessarily food thawing in the room, but just something moving and, and they're at a heightened sense of awareness, heightened state, just kind of keyed. And it can, it can get 
you know, pretty hairy at times. Uh, it's not very common, but it does happen. So you need to be able to react quickly, dunking your animal in cold water, bring a mouthwash nearby with the alcohol scent to let them release. You just got to be prepared for a lot of things because there is no, um, there's no script for this. There really isn't. There's no, this is what you do at this point. This is how you do with this. And this is how you do it. There isn't a formula. Um, there's a loose sort of pattern. Um, but what most breeders will tell you is depending on where you're located in the country, you're going to need to alter that and adjust. And you, nobody can tell you what those adjustments are. You kind of have to figure it out based on where you're at. Where I'm at in Northern California, we get a lot of dry, cold air in the winter. In the summer, we get some humidity, but it's nowhere near the tropical humidity in other places. So we have to account for that and and how we manage our animals and climate and bedding and humidifiers in the room, heaters, things like that. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, another thing that is is definitely linked to human error, which nobody needs to, you know, point a finger, be prepared to like, uh, you know, plan an assault on somebody should this happen. But it does happen to the best of us. And, you know, we, as a breeder, I try to, um, you know, appropriately determine the gender of these animals before they go off to their new homes. And every once in a while you get an in-betweener male that just doesn't manually vert the same way or um when probing doesn't go quite as deep but it's not shallow and it's sort of in between ventral scale count and um you know basically miss missexed animals can happen um and until you see it for your own eyes from the breeder before the time of sale and confirm it yourself afterwards like it's always a roll of the dice and it's not something that you need to be prepared to be on the defensive about but what you need to understand is if you are building a project around an animal and you don't sex it at all there is always that chance that you've sat around for a couple of years building a project around an animal that is the wrong gender and now all of a sudden you have to scramble to find something and it usually doesn't work that well um and most people end up having this aha moment when they throw two animals together and can't understand why these two pythons are battling it out and body slamming each other across the cage. In which case you have two males combating. Um, you know, they usually don't resort to open mouth biting and wounding one another, but there are some species that will eat one another or cause a little bit of damage, but it's something you need to be prepared for. So if you're throwing animals together for the first time and they start slamming each other against the cage, you thought that was a pair you might want to watch for a couple seconds and think about whether or not that's actually the case because it can happen it happens to the best of us um you know that's the again that's the reality of working with animals so you know making sure you double check your animals making sure you buy from somebody who you can either see them sex it right in front of you or you can do it ahead of time anything like that is always good um, it's just, again, it's one of those things, nothing is, is cookie cutter. Um, that being said, if you do have multiple males and you're not getting much going on at this time of year, combating can't be a fantastic tool in your toolbox. Um, when you talk about combating males, some folks don't understand, uh, the, the importance of that. And it's not crucial, but sometimes you need to get these animals on board and get them thinking, getting those, those gears turning. 
And uh, when you throw a male in with another male, oftentimes it gets their testosterone running, gets them thinking about like, oh, there's there's a male in, in my spot. That must mean he's looking for a female too. I need to assert my dominance because I need to pass my genes on. And next thing you know, you've got two males sort of wrestling one another. You split them up, throw them with respect to females, and they're both going to breed those females because they feel like they've just won when you pulled that uh, potential in their head losing male out of the area so combating is a great tool it's not essential um, and you should never let it go more than a couple minutes um, you know never put males together and just leave them unattended you need to watch them but um, it can definitely get them fired up and and maybe spur a little more motivation where it might be lacking so there's a there's a lot that can that can go on but ultimately you know, you spend a few years watching your animals, cycling them. If you're fortunate enough to uh, live in the same place for a few years, you'll see them get used to the rhythm of that room where you house them. And and they'll really give you these patterns of behavior that are cyclical. And you can start to understand and interpret them. And that's where you really are going to start having success. Um, you know, consistency is key. These animals will adjust and adopt your style of care. And I guarantee if you talk to Eric and Owen and Scott and all these different guys that live out in the East Coast where they get, you know, relatively similar weather patterns, they probably all do a lot different. Yet they're all successful in different ways. So there's not one right answer. But when it comes to breeding, the bottom line is you need to be able to understand and interpret your animals and within the parameters suggested by those who've come before us as far as how it's best to house those animals and cycle them, feed them and what they experience in the wild. You need to figure out the method that works best within your snake room, reptile room, wherever you house it. You need to, you know, spend some time figuring it out. And if you have the opportunity to raise them up in that, it's even better because by the time they're adults, three, four years under the belt of that, and they're ready to rock. They know what's coming next, and they're dialed in, and you know what's coming next, and you know how they behave, and you know when they start going off food or showing interest again. And you start seeing within that pattern of norm outwardly uh, different behaviors from your females, such as ovulation or follicular development. So there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to pay attention to, you know. If you're dealing with colubrids, it's different. You should really, you know, shut a lot of those animals down and ignore them for a long time. There's some animals of pyth like certain python species that don't really shut down at all in the wild, and you don't need to temperature cycle them. You can you can food cycle them, and you can sort of give them fluctuating humidity levels or food options, and really cyclically. Um, alter their their daily experience that way but uh, consistency seems to be the key most of the folks that have have had success with um, you know those oddball species like if you talk to Ryan Young with Dunn's pythons and uh, white lips it's, it's consistency he he changes very little he just kind of doesn't put a deadline on them Let's them get used to his his system of care, and he gets used to what their their deal is, and just they just find a, an agreement point, and and 
ride each other out and be the best and and it works um now i'm not saying that all species are you know put them in the box and just ignore them and let them do their thing for eight years and eventually babies will show up that's not how it works but consistency is important so there's there's a lot i mean I really love it when uh, Eric and Owen go over their breeding season episode every year because, uh, you know, to somebody who might not might not understand why they keep revisiting the topic, it seems redundant. But every year, um, every year, you know, they've had another year under their belt. Uh, that's, you know, a whole nother season of, of data points to decipher and add to trends and behaviors of understanding. And we sort of, uh, repeat a process every year, but at the same time, we're, we're fine tuning those little, little subtle details each year. And so, although I'm saying, you know, stay consistent let things ride out, find out what works, you are going to hone in and, and dial back temperatures like, oh, you know, a couple degrees below this is too cold or they they seem to be spending a lot of time in the cold in this time, so I need to let it get a little bit colder, things like that. Um, you know, like they're getting a little thin or I need to be, you know, on top of the water change this time of year because it's dehydrating season or, you know, just a little bit of cold air, like all these little things like paying attention to the scale quality of your animals. If you're dealing with light white lips or, or crebos or certain colubrids that'll desiccate and dry out easily, things like that. Um, you know, if, if we're talking carpets, you're going to see a lot of, uh, activity levels start to perk up over the last few weeks. Um, I've had, uh, some adults starting to cruise around females in particular, just kind of starting to follow the sun, starting to warm up a little bit. So, um, you know, first thing that tells me is, all right, you know, need to start reducing the night drop, start bringing the ambient temperatures back up, start, uh, paying attention to the heat of the, the room overall and really start, um, getting ready for feeding these animals back up into a normal cycle. Uh, if they're breeding, you know, where are they at? Have I seen good encouraging signs? Have I not? Do I need to consider combating a certain male or, um, do I need to, you know, maybe throw a small meal here and there at a certain pair to see if that stimulates some more uh, energy towards copulation or or follicular development? It's just, it's a lot. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I'm going to repeat myself on this, but you really need to be a student of the serpent. Um, and, and what does that mean? I mean... Uh, If you're going to be a student of the serpent, that means you're studying your animals, right? You're paying attention. Um, if you're raising animals up for, you know, a couple of years at a time, you know that animal by the time it's four years old. Um, you need to be able to understand why it's spending time in the cool end or why it's ignoring food or why it seems darker. Um, there's a lot. I mean, it's not an exact science and it, I am by no means a... Uh, a professor on this at all um you know i'm still 
learning as I go along. And that's kind of the fun of it all is you're going to learn and you'll get a formula from other folks who have had success before you. And you'll take that formula and apply it to your animals and your enclosures and your room. And then you'll find that afterwards, once you've had success, you've, you've sort of gone about it a different way. Um, maybe not dramatically different, but you, you might not have gone quite as cold or maybe you went colder or maybe you offered food during the winter, but smaller meals or maybe you didn't cycle them at all. And you did the Terry Phillip method. You let it ride at 82 year round. You did more food and wet season cycling. Um, if it works, it works, right? That's kind of ultimately what it comes down to. Um, you know, these warmer, warmer species, some of them don't need it quite as much. The, the poplin carpets just argue that they don't really get much of a winter. They get more of a wet and less wet season. Um, so that probably comes with uh, some some prey availability variation, which means that naturally they're being food cycled and humidity cycled and temperature cycled. So they're probably also uh, changing their activity levels and the time they're out basking, which means they're not warming up quite as much or quite as long. I mean, there's a lot of different things that, you know, these little details and these little variables all contribute to seasonality essentially, even if it's on an equator. So there's, there's little things you got to pay attention to like that. Um, if you own your house or you're in a spot for a long time, chances are you're going to get repetitive success. If you move around a little bit, chances are you're probably going to learn quite a bit, uh, but adjusting every year. Uh, and I've been there. I've had to breed during fire evacuations. I've I've had to move the middle of uh, the warming up season um, and, and everything in between. And I've had success and failures. I've had animals breed during fire evacuations. Like they were in a pillowcase in a tub in the trunk of my car while I drove down to LA for a couple hours, you know? So um, some animals just sort of just roll with it. Uh, there's hardier species than others, of course, but um you just don't really know until you dive in. Um, and the main thing I would say with that is, you know, where it's valuable is to make sure you're pursuing a species you love. You don't want to have a really challenging species and it's something you hate. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to deal with the species just like biting and flinging feces and urease at you. And it's a very common species. If it's rare, it's never been produced and, there's a lot to learn and discover then sure. But, uh, you know, you really got to be involved and enjoy it. So it's, it's gotta be something you, you really want to do and attach your name to. So, um, and this is one of those topics that Andy and I will probably revisit every year. Uh, I can't speak for Andy right now, but I know that he's been uh, growing an army of jungle carpet pythons and he's pretty excited to 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 bring a clutch or two in and really take that into the next chapter he's had some eggs but um you know part of what makes him who he is is that he's got a, a family a wife kids a business and everything and sometimes eggs just land in your lap and uh you gotta roll with it um you know, 
it is what it is. Like if, if I were running a large group of animals in an enclosure together communally, I would probably not be surprised to have eggs on a random day and just have to roll with it. If I'm keeping them separately and pairing them intermittently and, you know, I misread the signs or she hides the signs from me and then one day I'm come home to eggs, you know, you have to respond accordingly, but sometimes you do the best you can and they're infertile and you just don't know it or there's a lot that can go into it. So, um, Andy's probably going to listen to this and, and get those rosy red cheeks of embarrassment, but Andy is due for an epic clutch or two of jungle carpets because he's been amassing this little army that's high quality, minimal quantity, which is what you want to do. If you're going to breed, I guess we'll, we'll backpedal. This is going to be another, uh, another like little tidbit and I'm actually going to make a little note here in this, but, uh, quality versus quantity. If you want to roll the dice and producing a bunch of hypobrettles and your goal is to produce a bunch of them, chances are you can go throw a bunch of money at, uh, you know, a couple pairs or something like that, but you might not care about the quality, but you'll get results. But then there's folks who are going to cherry pick the holdbacks and the right ones for the right line, the right animals and the right look and really aim for one stellar clutch. So quality versus quantity is also important, especially with Morelia. Anybody and their mom can go get some pop ones and breed them and it just doesn't make sense or it doesn't work out or they don't have lineage or they're just little shop animals and next thing you know, you got a bunch of offspring that you can't sell because you didn't invest in quality. You just grabbed two random carpets. And that's a very real, uh, excuse me, very real reality. Um, you know, just because you can breed them doesn't mean people want them. Um, uh, I can't, I can't remember who this person was and it's probably a good thing, but I remember talking to a kid at a reptile show who found out I was into Morelia and it's like, oh yeah, I, I just got a, I just got a male brettles. I was like, oh cool. What, what line? He's like, oh, I don't know, but I'm planning on breeding it to, uh, to my IJ, I'm, you know, kind of politely smiled and just walked away. <laughs> uh, I think he really understood very quickly that what he had just said was horribly wrong and didn't make sense when the fact of the matter was that as soon as he said it, I turned around and didn't answer anything and just walked away and just shook my head. Um, what you need to understand is you these aren't just, you know, the same species. These are different subspecies, different lines, different morphs, there's different projects. And you can't just throw a carpet python to a generic carpet python and expect that you're going to produce anything, let alone anything attractive, let alone anything that's attractive that anybody wants to buy. So you need to understand that just because you have a carpet python doesn't mean you should breed it. Chances are if you got something from a pet shop, it doesn't have a lineage, it doesn't have... Uh, any breeder information, you have no idea what it really is. You have an undocumented carpet, and that is not something you should breed. Not to say that it's not a beautiful animal and you shouldn't enjoy it, but 
Um, this is again where quality versus quantity comes into play. Don't just buy a hundred carpet pythons to say you're a carpet python expert. Buy five carpet pythons. Aim for a specific project. Find out what you really like. Find out what really gets your gears turning and specialize in something and then expand out from there and become, you know, what you might call uh, an expert. I, I, I hate that word because anybody who is an expert will never call themselves one. Um, anyway, I'm just kind of getting off off task and off tangent here but uh so yeah there's there's a lot to think about um if i had andy here we could go on on this and make it a whole nother series and go on forever and ever but what you need to understand is uh if you do intend on breeding there's a lot of prep work that needs to 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 go on before you even get there. And I'm talking about like June, July. And it starts with making sure you have mature animals that you are cycling, throwing a ton of food uh, to ahead of time, getting them ready, giving them the fat stores, and making sure they're mature, ready to go. There's a lot. There's a lot that goes into it. And it's, I you know, as, uh, as somebody who can convey my experiences and speak on it a little bit, I can only tell you so much. It's one of those things that you have to go through the motions yourself. Because your reptile room or your racks or your cages are completely different from mine, even if you live next door to me. So there's a lot there's a lot that goes on. And ultimately, what you need to understand is know your, your process, your nuts and bolts, study the process. Then understand what it means to be a student of the serpent. And that basically comes down to paying attention to your animals. You know, getting a, an animal as a baby and raising it up to maturity is the best way to really understand that animal. So there's a lot of things that go into the decision making of your collection growth uh, pertaining to that. And then there's understanding the rhythm of your room. Uh, everybody's climate is different. Everybody's animals are different. And everybody's animals behave differently in that space. So, um you know it's just added layers of complexity um so there's a lot that goes into it but don't be afraid to ask for you know help ask questions because um that's that's the sign of somebody who wants to learn so if you want to learn you really want to understand find the folks who've come before you and ask and that's what i do a lot because i'm by far experienced like not experienced i have to you know, kind of go through my motions every year. This will be my fourth year producing uh, carpet pythons, and I still consider myself a rookie. So there's a lot to there's a lot to learn. You know, you just start racking up experiences under your belt, figuring it out as you go. So, um, so I I could I could kind of ramble on more and more, but I think uh, I think what we'll do is we'll we'll save this dead horse topic and, and feed it a little bit later when, uh, when we come back around again, uh, maybe with some guests with Andy and, uh, and really get some more perspective on it. But what we have to look forward to is this massive, massive list of topics and guests and, and technology and equipment and things to bring into. We have this whole, uh, series of, of tools of the trade, you know, sort of, what we use to to make our reptile room successful and there's a lot that is 
kind of piling up on this list. It's it's going to be a long series, but there's a lot of wonderful information from a lot of people who uh, have great experiences to share. So we're going to try and keep that series going. Um, we, we've been up and running for you know several weeks now, and uh, we have the upgraded service to, to bring guests on uh, so we can have sort of a, a, a bunch of different lines going. And uh, we said it before, we've, we've talked to Joe uh, on From the Ground Up about how we want to do this, but uh, we want to have Dan Maleri on um, very soon. He's back from uh, his recent herping trip and experiences out uh, in North Thailand where he's uh, eventually going to retire with his wife, Apple, in the next eight months. So there's a lot that uh, we're looking forward to, but we have the ability to bring guests on and uh, it's just going to be a matter of doing a quick test run on some stuff and, and getting it going. So uh, what you have to look forward to is finally, finally, the Reptile Room podcast uh, will be bringing guests on and we're going to kick it off with none other than Dan Malari talk about some overseas herping. Um, uh, the reptile hobby and, and his role in importing and, and what that means to him and sustainability and, and keeping things going for future generations and just kind of that excitement. And then uh, just keep this going. I mean, uh, there's a lot of shows that are coming back in full strength and, and doing weekly and it's really awesome. Um, but don't forget, you know, Andy is a, uh, is a husband and a father and has three kids and a wife and, and a lot of responsibilities and, uh, and we're going to continue to do the best that, that we can to make our schedules work because I do not have normal weekends. I do not have Saturday or Sunday off. Um, I work kind of crazy hours and, uh, and in addition to that, I have a collection here and I like to make sure that I, I devote, uh, a, a lot of time to my better half, my girlfriend, Rachel. So, um, there's a there's a lot that we do outside of this and this podcast is probably like i hate to say it but like you know third or fourth string of priority for us and uh we really want to make it good and and put out good content that everybody enjoys but at the same time um if we're not you know keeping our our lives and wives happy um you'll not hear from us so um please uh bear with us as we as we get through a lot of this but uh, on behalf of uh, Andy Ray and myself, uh, thank you for staying with us. Uh, you know, we're normal folks just like you. Everybody who's literally clicking the download button, y'all have a couple animals at home. You'll have, you know, jobs and routines and stuff. And same goes for us. So um, that being said, please keep sending these awesome suggestions and emails and comments and posts and everything on our Instagram and Facebook and the website. Um, it's, it's amazing to see the continued support and the downloads. Um, we're on uh, Instagram at reptile room podcast. We're on Facebook at reptile room podcast. If you go to the reptile room podcast.com, you can find us there. Um, there's a whole, you know, like topic submission form where you can suggest guests and topics and all this other stuff. And it goes directly to us. Um, if you like what you see or if we are still, uh, not quite up to par with our audio technical things that we've been running into with some, some EQ, EQ levels and volume levels, 
please, please keep giving us the feedback because that's the only way we can correct it. We try to to troubleshoot our own our own equipment, our own gear, our own feedback, and everything, and try to make sure uh, nothing slips through the cracks. But inevitably, this is you know what you're listening to is episode four, so we're still going through our learning curve, and we are human. So um, that being said, when you when you see a Riley fly solo, you know there's bound to be some accidents happening because Andy's the tech wizard, and I'm just uh, I'm just bulldozing through this all the best I can. So, um, you know, he's going to be schooling me and coaching me on this as we go through. Inevitably, we're a little bit far farther away than we would like. Um, but one of these days, we'll, we'll get together in the same room and go over this, and he'll be able to, you know, teach me and graduate me up to the next level of this understanding. But um, that being said, tonight we've we touched on a little bit. Uh, I was in Florida. I was jumping gators, playing with Komodos, dealing with venomous stuff, learning, uh, having a great time, and uh, come back to, to the heart of the breeding season where we're starting to warm up and things are really starting to kick off. So um, for everybody who's been sticking it through and, and really listening and hoping to get through some of this, these topics, we really appreciate it. We are looking to do some import topics, um, some dwarf monitor stuff, some retic stuff, gecko things, like lots of topics, tons and tons and tons. We've got pages of this stuff piled up. So um, please, please keep them coming because we want to make this a show for you by you. So um, with that being said, uh, if you're hearing this, today is Wednesday, February 20. No, excuse me. Today is February uh the 12th and um we will uh keep this keep this train rolling and uh the next episode will uh be scheduled to drop february 26th on wednesday again we do this every other wednesday and uh keep uh keep tuned in at the reptile room podcast on instagram and facebook and reptile room podcast.com online and uh that being said thank you if you've made it to this this point I appreciate you putting up with uh, me flying solo and talking by myself. Um, it is awkward. It is unusual, but uh, the show must go on. So anyway, you all are wonderful. Uh, love your reptiles. Love, love what you do. And uh, we'll catch you in, in two short weeks. Alrighty. Love, peace, and chicken grease. This is Riley tuning out. Peace.